BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome to our program. Tom Hartman here with you. There's so much going on we're going to get into today. And Congressman Mark Pocan is with us. Congressman Pocan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. First of all, I'm curious. Guns, of course, are at the tips of everybody's tongue right now. And I believe that something was passed out of the House that's waiting for action from Mitch in the Senate. But what's the status of gun-related legislation right now? Well, we made a priority of the first 10 bills where we prioritized things like cleaning up Washington and health care. Along with those 10 bills were measures around gun violence prevention. And we passed a couple bills, I think our first month or two, sent them to the Senate. And like all good legislation, apparently gets put in the back of a pickup and buried in some backyard in Kentucky, and we never see it again. And Mitch McConnell has not allowed any votes to come up. With this happening, it's not just two, actually. I think there are four shootings in a week, if you count. One in Wisconsin and Eau Claire, where two households were shot, and, and another shooting. I mean, this is just something that Congress has an inability to deal with, mainly because, I think, of the NRA. And yet people are starting to figure out the NRA. So, you know, at minimum, the Senate needs to take up these measures that have 80 and 90 percent public support. But also, Pramila Jayapal and I, as co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus, said we should be taking up the assault ban, the assault weapon ban as well. I mean, these are things that the public supports we need to deal with. And just because we all too often are afraid to take on powerful special interests in Washington, we meaning Congress collectively, these things don't happen. And then you have yet another mass shooting. So this is something we need people while members are home during this August period to really put pressure on members of the House and Senate to take up this legislation. Yeah, it seems like a big issue. So let's pick up some phone calls, okay? Yeah, absolutely. All righty. Marilyn in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Marilyn, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I have a request through you, Congressman Pocan, Mm -hmm. to the presidential Democratic candidates, that they all appear on the same day. Some will have to make two appearances at sites of white supremacist shootings, mass shootings, and plead the same case. I was so impressed by Cory Booker appearing at the AME Church, the Emanuel AME Church. The power of place and the power of presence, it just, it so amplified the power of his message. And I think if all of the candidates, some of them would have to visit at least two places, were to appear and speak to the people who who witnessed and underwent these tragedies, it would be a message that Donald Trump could not tamp down. He's very good at double-teaming his opponents, but they could exponentially double-team him. And the press, it would be everywhere in the media. He would be reduced to a whimper, even if it's just for one day. But to come together, all have the same message, all come and comfort and speak to the solutions to the violence that has visited these people's communities, their schools, their churches, their synagogues, their mosques, their movie theaters, their music festivals, their places of business. I think it would be incredibly, incredibly profound. Yeah, Marilyn, I would probably ante that up a little bit. 
you know, presidential candidates are one thing, but literally these days they're a dime a couple dozen. We've got so many. How about the people who are in power who can currently actually vote and change the laws doing these visits? I think one of the things that we are doing when we get back in September are there are going to be hearings directly tied to white supremacy and the, these actions, something, again, the president refuses to take on responsibility for his words and the actions that happen and how he's stirring up people to do things that I think they never would have done had he not essentially given permission through his words and deeds. So I think it's a great suggestion. We need to raise this and not let him get away with trying to distract where the problem is. I was on a conference call yesterday with the FBI director. We talked about some of these very issues and no question, we need to put the pressure on Donald Trump. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman Volcan, I just wanted to say thank you for your work. You're the last wall to protect us and make democracy work in this country. And we with you. That's all. Thank you, Morris. Thank you. Okay. Oh, nice comment from Morris there. Yeah. <laughs> Linda, Northwood, Ohio. Hey, Linda, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh Yes. My question is, why can we not fire these Congress people, leaders, politicians, including the president, if they're not doing their job. We, as everyday people, have a job description. They wouldn't wait four years to fire us if we weren't doing our job. Their job is protect the people, work for the people, so on and so forth. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Yeah, Linda, great question. And, you know, unfortunately, the way we define our jobs, people take different directions, but I think the way the public and then the mass majority of people understand it is if, if Congress refuses to act when we continue to have mass shootings, we can't pass bills that have 80 or 90 percent support. The one true way you have to impact that is via elections. And for members of Congress, it's every two years. Uh, senators, it might take a little longer. You've got the presidency is up next year. That is our single opportunity. And we just all have to do everything we can to get people out to vote because the public agrees with us. And if we get them out, I think you'll be quite happy with the results. Congressman, uh, with thoughts on what we do about the Electoral College? Yeah, you know, a lot of us would like to get rid of it, especially, you know, in a modern society where we're at. It's The realities have changed quite a bit, especially when you have the states the size of California and states that are so small they have a single member of Congress, and we need to probably have a better conversation about this at some point. But I don't expect that to happen in the very, very near future. So we need just to continue to, no matter where we live, make sure everyone gets out to vote and has their voice heard. We know more people agree with us on the issues. And that's why having turnout is so crucial. Matthew, in Bloomington, Minnesota, you are on the air with Congressman Polkan. Uh, Congressman Polkan, I'm 64 years old. I've always wondered, the Second Amendment doesn't say anything about ammunition. And since the Dems and the Republicans don't want to do a damn thing about the Second Amendment, then why don't you do something about ammunition? You can regulate, you can charge huge prices. You can uh, demand that people are licensed to buy ammunition. Yep, Matthew, I've heard that uh, brought up by people before, but I go back to just kind of human common sense, which is if we can't regulate guns, some people won't regulate guns, specifically the Republicans. I don't think they're going to all of a sudden say, but okay, but ammunition, we understand. I mean, it's still going to be the same, I think, fight that we have. What we need to do is really put the pressure on people. When bills have 80 to 90 percent support. The background check bill, 90 percent support, 80 percent of Republicans. And we still can't pass it. That is of epic proportions failure by Congress. And the accountability has to happen there. So rather than trying to get around it and you're going to run into the same problems, let's put pressure on those people who refuse to act. And one of those people is Moscow Mitch. You know, he is the single biggest stumbling block to any sensible legislation. And we need people in Kentucky to really put the pressure on their senator. Yeah, I see that the new trending hashtag for him is now Massacre Mitch. So, Massacre Mitch. Yeah. You know, the only problem with a new one every week, people are going to forget. But, you know, yeah. the fact that he can't <clears> even <throat> take up legislation to protect our elections, I think Moscow Mitch fits just fine. Yeah, there you go. Elizabeth in Youngsboro, Massachusetts. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Okay. I have questions for the congressman about Mr. Perez. Is he the one that negotiates these deals with the stations or the venues for the debates? 
because it seems like we aren't demanding any type of realistic questions or a realistic venue, and it, it looked foolish to me. Yeah, this format of you have 30 seconds kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I think they can have better control over it. I mean, the, we already saw the evolution from the first to second. I think what we saw, and I was at the second one in De- Detroit both nights, is that, I mean, the foolishness of the questions, the Republican talking points put out as questions, and that incredibly short amount of time, part of that is because you have a field of 20-plus candidates still. But I think they can do some parameters. They probably can't do, you know, the questions, obviously, because you want to keep you know, the journalists independent in what they're asking, and you can't have the party dictate that. But I think they could on format. In fact, one of my observations from being there is, you know, we were so scripted about when to applaud and everything else by CNN because it was a CNN presentation with our candidates being actors, right, within that. And it wasn't the best format. And I think part of it is just, you know, having the explosion of amounts of media and however they're trying to set this up. But you're right. I mean, when you have someone who's completely out of the process, who's not gaining from ratings or putting their main newscasters as the real stars, I think you might have a better debate. Mark in Plano, Texas. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, Congressman, I would like to know, you criticized Mitch McConnell, and he deserves a times 10 for doing nothing. I don't see Pelosi. I don't see Nadler, Schiff. I don't see anything happening. Nothing. No indictments being enforced. Nothing. So I'd like to know your response. Yeah, I, part of our problem is the mainstream media doesn't pick up what has all happened, but we have done a ton of things uh, in the House of Representatives, from passing H.R. 1, which is comprehensive election campaign finance and ethics reform, to uh, multiple measures around gun violence prevention, paycheck equity, women making 80 cents on the dollar. We raise the minimum wage. We've said we should go back in the Paris Climate Agreement. We've done several measures around health care and prescription drugs and getting generics and more prevalent in the market. We have done just so many bills in the first six months. And the problem is they all go to the Senate, but they have to be passed by the Senate. So when we say Mitch McConnell is burying them in the backyard in Kentucky, we mean it because we've sent a ton of legislation every single week that we've been there to the Senate, and he just sits on things, trying to deal with Russia interfering with our elections. I'm forgetting so many other things that are important. So, Mark, we've done a lot of our job. We can't do much more without the Senate's action. We can always do additional legislation, and we will, around infrastructure and prescription drugs when we get back. But to say that the House hasn't done something is just unfortunately plain wrong. But I understand why you might think that, because the mainstream media doesn't really pick it up. Congressman, we just have about 15 seconds. Thoughts on the coming week? Every member is home in August. This is the perfect opportunity to have your member of Congress or the Senate listen to you. Please use your time effectively and do that in the next few weeks. There you go. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course, Tom. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yep. Great talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Can you imagine your bed waking you up? No, not with, you know, shaking you or funny little fingers or, you know, tickling you or whatever. By temperature. A bed that actually monitors the temperature that you want all night long he gives it to you and then in the morning kind of just gradually warms up and wakes you up it's here the surface temperature of your bed waking you up it's not science fiction this is the new pod by eight sleep the pod by eight sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness there's a reason why time magazine calls eight one of the best inventions of last year it combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and your recovery it learns your sleep habits and adjusts the temperature automatically that means if you like a cool bed your partner likes the bed warm now you can have both at the same time in a crazy comfortable bed and no more alarm clocks you can get the pod the most advanced sleep system on the market at 8sleep e-i-g-h-t sleep.com slash tom t-h-o-m try the pod for 100 nights and if you don't love it they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup once again that's 8sleep.com slash tom e-i-g-h-t sleep.com slash t-h-o-m
On the line with us is former Congressman Bob Barr. He used to represent Georgia's 7th District. He's an attorney. He's a member of the Board of Directors of the National Rifle Association in 2002, which I think was around the last time you were in Congress. I see uh, Open Secrets lists you as the top recipient of gun rights money, Congressman Barr. It's uh, obviously something that you have been passionate about for some time. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, I am passionate about the Second Amendment and all the other parts of our Bill of Rights, which are all, in many respects, intertwined. So when is the leadership of the NRA going to basically atone for your sins, to come out and apologize to the American people and go back to your pre-1974, 75 positions in which you called for, the NRA used to be advocates for reasonable control of guns? Well, I'm not quite sure what all of the charges leveled at the NRA are these days, but it uh, all boils down to the fact that the left has a deep and abiding animosity toward the Second Amendment and toward any organization, including the NRA, that advocates for Second Amendment rights. So I suspect that, as with President Trump, there's really nothing that we can do to satisfy them, that is, our critics. Well, I'm just asking if you or your colleagues are ever going to apologize for facilitating mass murder in the United States. We're the only developed country in the world that has this problem. We're also 4.4% of the world's population, and we have half the world's guns in civilian hands. There's a clear correlation there, and you know, there, there have been multiple studies on this. Back in 93, when the Centers for Disease Control came to this conclusion, you know, two years later, Congressman Dickey put his amendment into the appropriations bill saying, we can no longer investigate guns as a public health issue as a result of NRA sponsoring him. He has since published an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Isn't it time for the NRA to say the same thing? The uh, Centers for Disease Control was set up after World War II in order to study diseases, and in particular, some of those that were afflicting the South, the southern United States, trying to shoehorn into a government bureaucracy or government agency that is supposed to be studying diseases, guns, and gun control, to me is inappropriate. Actually, and, the uh, phrase that's in their charter is public health, and you don't think that 20, 30,000, last year was 40,000 people dying because of guns, gun deaths, 40,000 gun deaths, is a public health crisis? Well, yeah. you can include uh, automobile deaths, you can include drug overdoses, yep. you can include... Absolutely, all the CDC has looked at all those things. They do. That's part of their public health well, portfolio. Well, and, and I think that's entirely inappropriate. I think it's uh, inappropriate to set up a government agency with a charter to study diseases, centers for disease control and prevention, and then put all of these other things on top of that and say, well... So are you uh, suggesting since, uh, that there should be a separate agency that is charged with looking at public health crises, you know, 50,000 automobile deaths as a result of alcohol, 450,000 cancer deaths and heart disease deaths as a result of tobacco, 40,000 deaths as a result of guns? Is that what you're advocating? Or are you saying we simply shouldn't even look at these things so that we can't come up with reasonable policies to deal with them? A lot of it really boils down, Tom, to what is the proper role for the federal government. I don't think that it's appropriate, and I'm not advocating that the federal government not involve itself in studying true public health issues. What I am saying is if Congress decides on behalf of the American people by majority votes and the president signs legislation saying that you know this is a particular problem that we want to devote funds and public resources to, then fine. Let Congress do that and let a president sign it. But thus far, the Congress of the United States in responding to the desires of the American people and representing those views, we don't want the government to be involved in every aspect of our lives. The NRA was a huge funder of the Trump campaign. I believe it was 30 or 40 million bucks you guys tossed in during the 2016 election. Are you or your colleagues, we're talking with former Congressman Bob Barr of Georgia, who's now on the board of directors of the NRA, are you or your colleagues beginning to reconsider that support for Donald Trump, given now he has been actually cited as directly cited as the motivation prior to El Paso, 61 murders, I guess this makes it 83 murders, and five specific terrorist plots. In each case, the person actually said, I'm doing this because of what Donald Trump said, or I am 
clearly animated by these people. The New Zealand attack, the MAGA bomber, the Waffle House shooting, the Quebec mosque attack. We've got now the Coast Guard shooter, Christopher Paul Hansen. In every single one of these cases, they directly reference Donald Trump. Is the NRA still standing behind him? Look, I'm not here to speak for the NRA. And I thought you were. No, I'm not here to speak for the NRA. The NRA has its own spokespeople. And well, spokesperson. you're on its board. Speak for yourself, no, then. Are you, are you reconsidering your support for Trump? for the NRA. I can okay. answer your question. All right, please, speak for yourself. If, well, from my standpoint, it is absolutely absurd to blame the President of the United States because some madman says, I'm doing this because of Donald Trump. Any more than a gunman might say, I'm doing this because of something that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says. How many people uh, have been killed in the name of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? I don't know. Do you? Yes. The answer is zero. Well, I also know, I just uh, have seen reports that one of the shooters uh, did mention her name. The point is, you know, these shooters, they can mention anybody's name they can. That does not make that person responsible for them. The shooters are responsible for their own You're talking action. about the guy in Dayton, Ohio, and he never suggested that he was shooting people for a political reason. This is a guy who was hearing it, it voices. It, the guy in Dayton had posts in support of Antifa. My point is not to cast blame mm -hmm. on any particular individual, two or three or four. The guy in El Paso moved. said he specifically was hunting Hispanics because of the Mexican invasion, and he specifically mentioned Donald Trump in his manifesto. I'm not talking about some Facebook post from Fine, two years but earlier. The, are you saying that that makes Donald Trump because his policies or policies that somebody believes he advocates was the motivation for them going out and murdering people, that Donald Trump was responsible for it? Trump yes, I am that saying that his hate law. speech I mean, is absurd. responsible. Yes, I'm saying that his hate speech is responsible, and I'm saying that you, and by the you, I mean the plural you, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, you guys at the NRA also bear responsibility for this by filling America's streets with weapons of war. And I would like uh, to hear some contrition. like the ACLU, which advocate against the death penalty and for drug usage, are responsible for those who commit crimes while under drugs or gang members. Are you trying no. to change the subject here, Congressman? It's not changing the subject. It's simply saying what the what ACLU does not advocate. To one the, set of facts applies to the other. So you're saying the ACLU is evil, I'm and that's okay. That if you follow your, and therefore you follow the NRA is evil, and that's NRA, okay. What I'm saying is if you follow your logic in holding the NRA responsible for the acts of a madman simply because... No, I'm holding says, the NRA responsible for our being 4% of the world's population and having 50% of the world's guns. I'm holding the NRA responsible for literal weapons of war being on our streets. For what weapons of war? These aren't automatic weapons. Automatic weapons may be the military, but these are not automatic weapons. These, None of these people These are weapons, weapons of war, sir. You no, know, they're not. I am a sports shooter. Weapons. And I have fired both fully automatic and semi-automatic weapons over the years. And you and I both know that if you're going duck hunting or you're going deer hunting and you show up with an AK-47 or, a, you know, some a modified civilian version of it or an AR-15, you're going to get laughed out of the room. No, you're you, not. You're, the AR-15 is and has been used appropriately for hunting because it is an extremely accurate uh, hunting rifle. That is not sportsmanship. That what do you mean? Not that's not sports. Going it's out a, with a rifle? going out with thirty rounds against it. That is not. You know. Okay. So, bottom line, it's all good. Is that what you're saying here, Congressman Barr? It's all good. The number is, of guns that we have good? in our what country, the good? type of guns, the type of guns we have in our country, anybody should be able to buy them. You're you're fine with the president signing this legislation in his first months in office, saying that people who've been judged mentally ill to the point that they get social security disability can no, now buy are, guns. People who have been judged mentally ill are prohibited by federal law, going back four or five decades, from possessing I a firearm. People who are on social security because of mental illness were unable to buy guns until the Republicans in Congress and the president, when the Republicans controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House, in the first months of his administration, passed and signed a law that said, if you're on Social Security because of mental illness, you can buy a gun again. That's okay with you. It is not, and it did not it say that they were mentally ill. It had to do with whether or not they were certain aspects of being on uh, Social Security, whether they... They were disabled by their mental illness. Look, 
I'm not going to sit here and say the NRA was responsible for the acts of a madman or that the president is or that anybody in public office is unless they deliberately and directly advocate that somebody go out and use whatever kind of weapon it is or firearm it is to kill somebody. Okay. And the NRA does definitely not do that. Neither does President Trump. Former Congressman Bob Barr, his website, Bob Barr, B-O-B-B-A-R-R.org. And his Twitter handle is Bob Barr, just like it's spelled. Congressman, thank you for dropping by today. Sure thing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I think it's safe to say the NRA is not embarrassed, ashamed, or, or anything close to it. They say the only two things uh, certain in life, I think it's an old Ben Franklinism, or death and taxes. Well, <laughs> subset of one of those, or maybe both, is aging. And uh, that leads to things like under-eye puffiness and wrinkles and crow's feet. And what do you do about that? Well, what works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under-eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under-eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under-eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. Our book today is How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal M. Fleming. This is from the introduction, The Origins of Racial Stupidity. It opens with an epigraph from Martin Luther King Jr. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that the white people of America believe they have so little to learn. From the introduction. Hundreds of years after establishing a nation on colonial genocide and chattel slavery, people are kind of, sort of, maybe possibly waking up to the sad reality that our racial politics are still garbage. But as our society increasingly confronts the social realities of race, we're faced with a barrage of confusing developments. How could the same country that voted twice for an Ivy League-educated black president end up electing an overt racist who can barely string together two coherent sentences? Why do white liberals who can't even confront their Trump-supporting friends and families think that they can lead the resistance? Democrats who don't care about mass deportations or the treatment of Muslims under Obama suddenly care now that a Republican is in charge. While black and brown people are being crushed by systemic white supremacy, the rapper Common thinks we can all get over a race by extending a hand in love. Don Lemon still has a job. Rachel Dolezal exists. Everyone has an opinion about race, but 99% of the population has never studied it. And even many textbooks that talk about race are filled with lies, inaccuracies, and so-called alternative facts. With so much racial ignorance in the world, how can we ever find our way to that glorious mountaintop Martin Luther King Jr. glimpsed right before a white racist killed him? Although race is an inherently divisive topic, the cause of continual controversy, Facebook feuds, and endless debates, there is exactly one thing and one thing only that we can probably all touch and agree on, regardless of our racial or ethnic identity, gender, age, political beliefs, or shoe size. And that is that we are surrounded by racial stupidity. From the White House to Waffle House, from the classroom to the internet comments section, from the television to the tiki torch aisle of your local Pier 1, we are surrounded and at times astounded by the ignorant and dangerous ideas people express about this thing called race. Why are so many people so incredibly confused and misinformed about race? It's the white supremacy, stupid. As I'll demonstrate throughout this book, one of the main consequences of centuries of racism is that we are all systemically exposed to racial stupidity and racist beliefs that warp our understandings of society, history, and ourselves. In other words, living in a racist society socializes us to be stupid about race. Of course, as you well know, some people are more afflicted by racial stupidity than others. We'll get into the nature of those variations a bit later. For now, I want to emphasize just how widespread and ubiquitous racial ignorance really is. 
Politicians routinely spout racist distortions of reality and lie about the existence and nature of racial oppression. Absurd racial stereotypes pervade our various forms of media. And as noted, textbooks systemically misrepresent racial history in ways that minimize or erase racism altogether. And all too often, teachers themselves are undereducated or miseducated about the history and ongoing realities of racial oppression. How to Be Less Stupid About Race explores precisely how and why racial stupidity has become so terribly pervasive and examines the cesspool of silly ideas, half-truths, and ridiculous misperceptions that have thoroughly corrupted the way race and racism are represented in the classroom, pop culture, media, and politics. The key idea that I'll come back to again and again is that living in a racist society exposes us all to absurd and actually harmful ideas that in turn help maintain the racial status quo. Drawing from my own experience as an educator and as someone who continually confronts my own racial ignorance, I'll also share some concrete steps that you, as well as your racist friends, ignorant family members, and clueless co-workers can take to become less stupid about race and better equipped to detect and dismantle racial oppression. While I don't personally believe in post-racial utopias and I don't put a lot of faith in reaching glorious mountaintops, I know for sure that the very first step in challenging racism is having a clear understanding of what it actually is. Not only are we surrounded by stupid ideas about race, we are even surrounded by stupid ideas about how to talk about race. In May 2015, Starbucks launched a doomed campaign called Race Together to encourage baristas and coffee drinkers around the country to have a conversation about race. Although many might have mistaken the campaign for a satirical entry on The Onion, Starbucks announced that its employees had the option of arbitrarily writing the hashtag Race Together on a random customer's cup. Aspiring coffee drinkers minding their own damn business would then be obliged to say something to the barista about race. After a steady stream of criticism and mockery on social media by anti-racists across the color spectrum, yours truly included, the company eventually backpedaled and canceled the initiative. To some, encouraging random people to talk about race sounds like a step in the right direction. But we don't need more profit-driven corporations to take a stand and say that race is a legitimate and important topic of discussion. Rather than thinking about the best practices that might foster a productive discussion about race, the company executives thought best to just sort of tell everyone to figure it out without providing any educational resources, training, or guidelines whatsoever. In a letter to employees, Starbucks chairman Howard Schultz stated that he conceived of the idea, quote, not to point fingers and not because we have answers, but because staying silent is not who we are. How to be less stupid about race by Crystal Fleming. When the NRA says, oh, we have a mental health problem in the United States. When Mitch McConnell says, we've got a mental health problem in the United States. When the Republican Party says, we've got a mental health problem in the, in the United States. In a very small way, they're correct. However, the details, they don't get the details right. We have a mentally ill man as president. And until we acknowledge that, we are not going to heal from it. And we are not going to do anything about it. And I think it's fairly apparent to the rest of the world. Donald Trump is mentally ill. It is certainly apparent to mental health professionals. There have been books written about it. And now people are dying as a result of Donald Trump's mental illness. We had a young white man who traveled eight or nine hours to El Paso, Texas, with an arsenal worthy of a Marine in Iraq specifically to hunt Hispanics, to hunt and kill Latinos and Latinas. And a group of high-profile Hispanics, I guess would be the phrase, have published an extraordinary op-ed in the Washington Post. Stephanie Valencia, Joaquin Castro, Ana Maria Schila, Cristina Jimenez, Luis Miranda, Luis Miranda Jr., and others. 33 Latino leaders is how they describe themselves in the op-ed. It is titled, Hispanics in America are under attack. Now, obviously, it's not just Hispanics. African Americans in America have been under attack literally since 1619. 
and continue to this day. Native Americans in America have been under attack since 1492. And those attacks continue to this day. In fact, right now on the reservations, one of the biggest problems that they have in many of these reservations is that white men can come onto the reservations and commit crimes. The most common one is rape. And once they leave the reservation, there is no police authority that can go after them. But this is a group of Hispanic leaders who are specifically saying Donald Trump's hate speech. Now these are my words, not theirs. Donald Trump's, I'll give you their words in just a moment. Donald Trump's hate speech, which he literally kicked off his campaign with, coming down the golden elevator. Back when it was just a stunt trying to get a raise out of General Electric for his NBC show, Celebrity Apprentice. He found out that Gwen Stefani was making $2 million a year more than he did. He got very upset. Him and Michael Cohen and his PR team figured out, hey, you know, let's do a phony run for president. They hired a bunch of actors, paid them 50 bucks an hour to stand in the audience and applaud wildly. They set up two rallies over the next two weeks and they hired actors to come to those rallies. And this the entire thing was supposed to last two weeks until in the third week, Donald Trump was returning to NBC to renegotiate his next year's contract. I mean, this is literally why he ran for president, to make more money. And I think it's why he kicked the thing off with just a total, hey, I don't give a whatever about what people think because I'm not going to become president. He never thought he'd become president. He never even thought he'd be the Republican nominee. He just went full Bullworth. I'm going to tell you what I really think. And what he really thinks is that the darker somebody's skin is, the more likely they are to be a criminal and lazy and stupid. And he has said these things. He has said he doesn't want black people as bookkeepers. Instead, he wants guys with yarmulkes. Well, I mean, you know, elevating a race is just as racist as trashing a race. And he does both in a single sentence there. But he starts out by saying, that Hispanics are rapists and murderers and killers and gang members. And, and he's continued this rhetoric. And now, you know, the Democrats are saying, at least stop, and not just the Democrats, Americans are saying, at least stop these Facebook ads. 2,000 different Facebook ads now that use the word invasion and point to the southern border. I'm not talking about one Trump ad that ran 2,000 times on Facebook. I'm talking about literally 2,000 different advertisements that they have placed on Facebook, each one reaching hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And when the Trump campaign, when somebody went to the Trump campaign and said, you know, are you going to stop this? One word answer, no, according to the Washington Post. But back to Hispanics in America are under attack. But here's what these folks had to say. Many will not want to hear or believe this. Hispanics in this country are under attack. Black and brown people in this country are under attack. Immigrants in this country are under attack. And President Trump is fanning the flames of hate, division, and bigotry directed at us all, immigrants and U.S. citizens alike. Though the attack has been pervasive for many people in this country for years, it is becoming an epidemic that is quickly infecting more communities and posing a real threat to our country, write these Hispanic leaders. The president, they add, is also providing cover for white nationalists, explicitly endorsing hate speech and tacitly endorsing violence. And they're right. Their call for action, they're saying we demand leadership from both political parties. And I'm with them on that. Where are the Republicans on this? Jake Tapper for State of the Union. He opened his show on the weekend saying that they reached out to the Republican senators from Texas to be on because they had a couple of Democrats on talking about the shooting in El Paso. They reached out to the both Republican senators from Texas, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. No, sorry, we can't appear. They reached out to Greg Abbott, the governor. No, sorry, we can't. The lieutenant governor. Nope, we can't appear. Republican members of Congress, no, not a chance. One out of 50, literally they asked 50 different elected Republican officials to come and speak on the record about this. And only one, Ted Yoho, 
was willing to do it. And he got ridiculed because he came on and he said, oh, it's uh, video games and mental illness. And Kevin McCarthy, the number one Republican in the House, is now saying this. Oh, it's, it's these video games. You know, Japan has a gaming culture. I mean, in, in the United States, it's just like one of many things that young people do. In Japan, it's like front and center. You hear anybody doing mass shootings in Japan? No, neither do I. They add in this op-ed, they say, our leaders must have the courage to stand tall against this hate. I would add, our leaders must have the courage to say explicitly, out loud, to our people, that that man in the White House is mentally ill. And his mental illness is triggering mentally ill people all over the country. And it's giving cover to these racists. You can argue that racism should fall into the category of mental illness. I think that that's an argument that's like, we're way past that. Mental illness basically is the excuse that is used for crimes when they're committed by white people. And it's time to stop trying to hide behind that. But we also have to acknowledge that the guy who is inciting a lot of this, yes, he's a bigot. He has been a bigot his whole life. He's a racist. He's a thug. He's a bully. But he's also a pathological liar. Pathology means illness. He literally lies every single day. 16,000 lies now, according to the Washington Post. But one of his wives has accused him of violent abuse. She later withdrew the claim. You know, it was Ivana as the divorce was working through. But she said that he had beat her and raped her. And he brags about grabbing women by the private parts. He's got 20 more or less women who have charged him with sexual assault. And the Republicans just kind of shrug their shoulders. Oh, yeah, that's him. No, he's sick. And that sickness is infecting our country. And we have to acknowledge that. In this op-ed here in the Washington Post, this is hate and white nationalism, plain and simple, and it is fueled by irresponsible rhetoric. Unabashedly saying that Muslims should not be allowed in this country, warning people of invasions from Hispanics and immigrants, as cited in the Suspects Manifesto, encouraging chants of send them back and calling neo-Nazis and white supremacists very fine people are all examples of rhetoric that inspires hate and violence. We see the consequences in the stories of the victims and their families who warn them in the tears of those caring for the wounded. They point out that since the Sandy Hook massacre of 20 elementary school children in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012, there have been 2,193 mass shootings in the United States. Other countries are literally warning their people about coming to America if they have brown skin. It's amazing. The New York Times reporting the Trump campaign unapologetic about running Facebook ads that use the word invasion. Hey, Tom Harbin here. You know, we've been talking on this program for years now about the benefits of CBD. And I just in the last few months discovered New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. It is the premium, organic, highly concentrated pure CBD oil. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, is grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's n-u-leafnaturals.com. Save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Pick up some of your phone calls here. Mike in Los Angeles. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, just a historical note. The uh, rule about mental health professionals not commenting on the mental state of public uh, figures, it was called the Goldwater Rule. You're absolutely right. And it originated in 1964 or after that campaign. I just noticed that in the olden days when King George III went temporarily insane from an organic condition, 
was periphery, it's a metabolic condition. At that time, he did not have a smartphone. He was not able to tweet to fellow lunatics at 3 a.m. Right. The people around him sort of contained him, and we unfortunately don't have that sort of total insulation at our disposal today. But as for Mr. Trump himself in his mental state, one of the earliest misdemeanors in his record is when he was a pre-adolescent, and his next-door neighbor caught him standing at the fence throwing rocks at her toddler who was contained in a playpen. And now he's a septuagenarian. He's practicing terrorism by kidnapping small children from their parents, some of whom may never see them again. Mike, where'd you get uh, that story from? I have not heard that story before. Uh, I don't know. It may have been in The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, hmm. but I know I read it in a reputable source. Okay. So what we have here is someone with an unusual degree of sadistic, cruel impulses, and he's in the most dangerous job potentially in the world, right. expressing his death force. And, and by the way, that makes perfect sense. You scratch your head. How can this guy think that Kim Jong-un is a great guy? Right. And, well, and how, they share how the same think, impulses. Absolutely so. And how do you condemn the globe to possible numerous extinctions, including possible extinction of the human race with a clear head. I can't see it. Yeah, unless you're mentally ill, unless you're literally a sadist. Yep. Yeah. I think you've nailed it. Mike, thank you very much. I appreciate the call. Uh, Right now on the line with us is Christian Piccolini. He is a reformed white nationalist, the founder of the Free Radicals Project, the author of three books, including his most recent, which is soon forthcoming, Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. His website, freeradicals.org, and his Twitter handle is C. Piccolini, P-I-C-C-O-I-O-L-I-N-I. Christian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks for joining us. So, first of all, you know, whatever you want to say about white nationalism and, you know, how you got into it and how you got out of it and all that sort of stuff would be, you know, I think fascinating and would love to hear. And where do we go from here? How do we most effectively combat this? If I can give you kind of a multi-part question there. Sure. Yeah, well, I was uh, recruited into America's first white nationalist or white supremacist skinhead organization in 1987 when I was 14 years old. I spent eight years as a part of that movement, eventually became one of its leaders until I found my way out in 1996 when I was 23. I spent the last 23 years asking myself the question of how and why I found my way there to begin with and, and how I found my way out. And for the last 20 years, I've been helping other people disengage from hate groups. Over 300 people do that. You know, one of the main reasons I found for myself finding my way into the movement was I grew up in a really loving family, but I felt abandoned. My parents are Italian immigrants who came to the U.S. in the mid-60s. And, you know, frankly, when they came over, they were the, the objects of prejudice for many people. So it wasn't a part of my family DNA, but I felt very abandoned because they were working, you know, seven days a week, sometimes 14 hours a day. So it was, you know, I was looking for a family. I was looking for identity, community, and purpose when one day at 14 years old, I was standing in an alley and smoking a joint. And a man came up to me and he pulled that joint out of my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. You know, if I'm being honest, I didn't know at 14 years old what a communist, a Jew, or even what the word docile was, but it seemed like this man was really kind of offering me something that I hadn't found anywhere else. Right. So for a generation of young people who have bought into this, and we saw them, you know, right up front in Charlottesville, for example, and we continue to see them, although increasingly now they're wearing masks, how do we respond to this at the individual level and at the institutional level? Yeah, well, I mean, I think certainly that's, a, that's an important question. Until institutional and systemic racism is gone, we're going to have a hard time dealing with the endless line of people who are attracted to this ideology. But I can say also that ideology is not the main attractor for people to join these movements. Actually, it's a broken search for identity, community, and purpose. And they hit on their life journey what I call potholes. Those are, you know, the things in life that kind of detour us to the fringes and it could be trauma it could be you know mental illness it could be poverty could be joblessness but even privilege you know keeping ourselves in a bubble could 
push us towards the fringes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we are facing now is a human infrastructure crisis in our country. I think that you know not only are we as people facing this broken search for identity, community, and purpose, and dealing with potholes, but so is our country. You know, we have not ever acknowledged properly the horrors, the Holocaust that has happened on our soil. There are so many things that we need to repair before, as a society, we can even move forward. You're I'm working about, with people. I I'm assume, also really trying to inform people on you know what's happening behind the scenes, where this movement started, and really where it's going. Yeah, I assume you're talking about the, the slaughter of 50 to 100 million Native Americans and 400 Absolutely. years of enslavement of human beings on this continent. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, people, we tend to talk about violent extremism in modern terms, but since 9-11, more Americans have been killed on U.S. soil by white supremacists than by any other extremist group. And people ask why I start at 9-11. And I say, because if I started before 9-11, I'd have to include, you know, tens of millions of other people. Mm. Yeah. So if somebody listening knows somebody in their family, in their circle, in their work circle, who is increasingly binding themselves to white supremacist and white nationalist philosophies, and you might want to clarify the distinction between the two. How do they approach that person? What should they say? Yeah, and I think, first of all, that's an important question you asked about distinction. You know, the white supremacist ecosystem is made up of many different branches that include, you know, neo-Nazis, you know, what we call involuntary celibates or incels, which is a movement, kind of a men's, uh, I hate to even call it a men's rights movement, but it's it's uh, a bunch of very toxic males who are hurting women because they feel like women aren't accepting them. And then, you know, of course, the Klan and things like that. But, you know, one of the most important things that I do when I work with people is I, I do a lot of listening and I listen for those potholes because that informs me on the motivations of why they gravitated towards that movement. You know, people aren't born to hate, people learn it and and they tend to project their own self pain onto other people and that typically manifests as hate. When I listen, I clue into those things and when I build resilience, it tends to help folks out. Yeah, we're talking with Christian Piccolini, a former white nationalist, founder of the Free Radicals Project, freeradicals.org, his uh, new book, Breaking Hate. Christian, to what extent do you think that the rhetoric coming out of the White House is feeding this movement? And how should we respond to that? Well, it's it's highly problematic. I mean, so many of the things that I'm hearing in terms of rhetoric and even policy are things that I pushed for 30 years ago that I would have been very happy about when I was an avowed neo-Nazi. Everything from immigration to the demeaning of people, uh, you know, as asshole countries and things like that. Those are all things that I spouted and that our movement was very much about. But let me be clear here. White supremacists are not pro-democracy. They are not pro-America. They're nihilists. They intend to destroy everything in their path, either to create a homeland for themselves or to kind of scorch the earth and start over. This isn't this isn't a proactive movement for rights. These are people who really throughout history have, have just destroyed everything that they've touched. Hmm. How did you get out of this? Well, you know, I received compassion from the people I least deserved it from at a time when I likely least deserved it. And that was very powerful for me because I had never in my life, having joined at 14 years old, I'd never in my life had those meaningful interactions with the people I thought I hated. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me because I was able to replace the demonization that I had in my head with humanization. You know, I also... had children at 19 and 21, and that challenged my sense of identity, community, and purpose. Yeah. Okay. It's fascinating stuff, and you know, I look forward to reading your book. Christian Piccolini, the uh, former white nationalist, founder of the Free Radicals Project. Freeradicals.org is the website. You can tweet him at C. Piccolini. I've been mispronouncing it, haven't I? Picciolini, like a peach. Picciolini. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for correcting me, and thank you for being on our program. It's great talking thank to you. Thank you, Tom. John in Oak Park, Illinois. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. I was thinking, you know, these multiple shooting incidents are really either they're trying to death by cop, and they're also trying to start a race war. And to that end, uh, you know, uh, they're practicing in the woods, like drills, army maneuvers, flanking techniques, 
get five guys protesting in the city or amongst minority community. They all gather and kind of like have like an argument ensue, and then they're in the wings waiting for a text message to come in and clean up with battle armor and night vision and magnification, long, long guns. I think we're heading toward that. Well, this is certainly what Tim McVeigh thought he was going to start when he blew up the Oklahoma City federal building in Oklahoma City and killed Uncle the... Dylan Root. Yeah. Dylan no. Root in South Carolina wanted to do the same thing. These guys right. are what a death by cop, and they want to go down in infamy like the guy who shot Archduke Ferdinand. Yeah. You know, just yeah. be like the guy who got it all, everyone fighting everybody. Yeah, I understand that, and I agree with you. And, and you know, the Turner Diaries was the novel that animated McVeigh, and now there's this book by a French author that's, you know, animating the modern version or the modern generation. Okay. But I had a double dip real quick. The gun thing. I think the caliber and the barrel length. If we said, hey, you want to have a 30-round magazine, it can only be with a 22 caliber under 12 inches in length. Who needs if a 30-round magazine? Pardon me? I mean, outside of the Army... Or arguably yeah. law enforcement. Who needs a 30-round magazine? I'm just saying to placate them. I'm going to go and say, like, if you want to, but a 22 caliber is a non-lethal round at any distance. Oh, you can kill somebody very effectively with a 22. You just hit them in the face. Up close. Well, yeah, but the thing about, like, if you get shot with an AK-47, you get shot in the leg, you're lame for life. That's, your legs are going to shatter. You're never going to walk right again. Right. Even if you're not fatally killed, all those people wounded will never be the same. They'll have... You're right. I mean, not just traumatic, but also, like, you get shot in the knee, your legs, you're crippled for life. That's right. I get your point. Yeah, I got it. Thanks, John. I think this issue of the race war thing is something that a lot of people are afraid to talk about in the media. And we have to understand, as Mr. Picciolini was talking about, that this actually is something that in the dark corners of the Internet and other venues they've been talking about for some time. And as I pointed out, Tim McVeigh thought he was gonna start a race war. The whole narrative of the Turner Diaries is that in the Turner Diaries, this good white Christian patriot blows up the federal building in Oklahoma City. And in response to that, and keep in mind, this was a year or two years, I think to the day, after uh, Waco and another year after Ruby Ridge, as I recall, and Bill Clinton and Janet Reno had already taken a lot of heat for the way that they responded to Waco. And so in the novel, the guy blows up the federal building and the president comes down on the gun owners and starts literally having police departments all over the country go door to door and confiscate guns. This in turn produces this response where all the white Christian gun owners proactively in response to this, but also in places where this is not happening, just basically get out in the streets and start killing people. Start killing people who are black, start killing people who are Hispanic, start killing people who are Asian, and start killing people who are Jewish. And this begins a war, an actual you know, civil war in the United States that is racially based. And at the end of this war, the guy who started it and his buddies, you know, by blowing up that federal building, that guy and his white Christian buddies are the last ones standing. And America has been turned into the white nation that it was conceived of by the founders in the mind, you know, in this novel, in this Turner Diary novels. And this is the narrative that these, that many of these white supremacists are actually following. Now, I don't know if, you know, somebody like Tucker Carlson is, you know, a big believer in that narrative. I somewhat doubt it, but they're certainly giving aid and comfort, to say the very least, to the people who do believe this. And they're helping those folks promulgate these bizarre and destructive and hateful theories. Uh, Rizwan in Chicago. Hey, Rizwan, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I just had a theory on the root cause of white nationalism in America. Mm -hmm. And I think it's due to a lost or diluted identity. For example, I was born in America, but I'm brown and easily identifiable by my ethnicity as an Indian. So it's easy to say to me, go back to India or to a black person, go back to Africa, even if neither one of us has ever been to those countries. But to say to a white person, go back to which country, you know, Germany. Or you can say go back to Europe. I mean, there's more than a few Native Americans who express that sentiment. (laughs) Right. So what I'm trying to say is that a lot of white people don't associate themselves with Europe. So with their lost identity, they're trying to make a claim to the land. So the real Mm. question is, in our society that we're dealing with today is, who is an American? Who qualifies 
to be an American today. Yeah. Well, to a certain extent, this is what, you know, Christian Picciolini was talking about, this this idea that, you know, he talked about a lost sense of identity. You know, I don't know exactly who I am. Only he was talking about it in a much more micro rather than the macro version of who is and who isn't an American. When I was a kid, not to sound like an old fart here, but in civics class in third, fourth, fifth grade, when we memorized the preamble to the Constitution and the Gettysburg Address and learned about the three branches of government, all those things that they don't teach in school anymore, by and large, or at least probably about half of our schools they don't teach, you know, we learned that the whole idea of America was to create a pluralistic society where everybody was a citizen and everybody was part of it. And that was actually lived out to some extent in the North during the Revolutionary Era when African-Americans were citizens in many states and was not lived out in the South until after the Civil War, or at least, you know, the, the very beginning of that. And it's kind of a mythology about America, but it's also, you know, the ideal of America. That that was fairly rigorously taught in the 50s and 60s in our schools, we, you know, we need to return to that. We need to return to that, again, mythology, national story, right, national narrative, that we are made stronger by diversity, not that we are weakened by diversity. The sales pitch that Donald Trump has right now is that having a diverse populace is weakening America and that bringing people in from S-hole countries as opposed to Norway harms America or weakens America. And the fact of the matter is that that's simply not true. Having immigrants and refugees come here or the descendants of same with you know diverse colors of skin and religions and worldviews and whatnot strengthens America. And you know we need to be saying that over and over and over again to be pushing back on this stuff that's coming out of Trump's mouth. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 